0: These are the true stories of farmers, conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land.
1: This is Ron Cruz with uh, videographer Shelly Rogers. Today is December 15th. 2017, and we are in Atlanta, Georgia, the annual meeting of the Domestic Fair Trade Association annual meeting, where I have the privilege of interviewing Shirley Sherrod from Albany, Georgia, veteran advocate for the civil rights of farmers of color and disadvantaged rural people in the Southern United States. Uh, Mrs. Sherrod is the former Georgia State Director of Rural Development for the United States Department of Agriculture. She currently serves on the boards of the Rural Advancement Foundation International (RAFI), Rural Development Leadership Network, and the Albany Chamber of Commerce. We are also joined for this discussion by Michael Sly, longtime friend and fellow family farm advocate, who serves as the Just Foods Program Director for the Rural Advancement Foundation International. Thank you, Shirley, for agreeing to take part in this, and and Michael. You too, appreciate it very much. So, Shirley, you've had decades of courageous efforts for farmers who've been underserved by USDA, not to mention your own work as a farmer. There's just so much to talk about. But to kick this discussion off, I'd like to have Michael talk a little bit about some of the things he's been thinking we really wanted to uh, ask you about.
0: Okay.
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm just uh, grateful to, to have this opportunity, and especially Shirley, having agreed to be on our board, we're very honored, and, and her and her whole family have just been uh, heroes of ours for a very long time.
0: Thank you, Michael. It's good to, to be able to have a conversation with you. We come to board meetings, there's not much time, That's right. and a lot of them are on the phone. So, you That's know, right. it's good to be able to, I think it's always good to sit and sort of critique some of that work that started many years ago.
2: That's right. And I think we've made good progress, Mm -hmm. but I guess my frustration is that uh, there's still so much more to do. Yes.
0: In some ways, it just seems some of the things that I did in earlier years that should have been solved a long time ago, they're creeping back around again. And uh, I had a farmer in my office a couple of weeks ago and he brought his lawyer along and, and they wanted to talk about a discrimination case now. And the lawyer said he had studied Pickford and I said, well, let me, let me tell you one thing here. Um, we probably need to look at some other ways of solving the problem because if you start a discrimination case right now, you probably won't live long enough to see the end of it. And that's sort of you know, where we are with this work, because everyone thought when the government settled the Pickford case that all of the discrimination problems had ended. And I probably have more farmers now who cannot borrow money from the agency, who don't have anywhere else to turn other than with some of these seed companies uh, and this same place the crop has to go back to to try to survive. So it's it's really bad. Yes, it is
2: bad. And I think if you look at the history of Rafi, you know, we trace our roots back to the 1930s mm-hmm. and, and the whole fight around sharecroppers and black mm-hmm. and white farmers organizing and trying to make for a better life. And in many ways, you're right. We are kind of back to the future, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. What we've noticed with discrimination at uh, USDA is that in the old days, they would just say, not over my dead body, yeah. <laughs> and just be pretty straightforward about it. Mm-hmm. But now what they do is they, they say, okay, sure, I'll take your application, but then the money doesn't come on time. Mm-hmm. And then the operation gets out of cycle, and they get their hogs mm-hmm. laid, or mm-hmm. they get their crop in late. And then they say, you're a bad manager, yeah. and then you're behind on your payment, and then the next thing you know, they're foreclosing mm-hmm. on you again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are you seeing that in, in Georgia? Are you hearing yes. those same kind of stories? Or?
0: Most of the the black farmers in the area can't borrow from the agency.
2: So when you say they can't borrow,
0: what? they It's not all about not trusting anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's just they can't meet the criteria okay. for being able to get a loan anymore oh, if you have a county supervisor who's willing to work with them.
2: Right, right, you right.
0: So um, I don't have many who actually borrow from the agency. Right. But they're dealing with the agency.
2: (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. But Mm -hmm. if you have to take a loan from the same company you're selling to, that has a lot of uh, overtones of the company store, doesn't it? That's right.
0: That's exactly what it is. And many of them have waited Till it's almost too late to even look for anywhere else, and then the farmer has a prime piece of property that he's been renting, mm. and this guy down the road who can get all the money he wants has been looking at that. And that's what happened with this farmer who came into the office a couple of weeks ago. He he has some pro- he has two farms that they that they really one of them they really want to get from him. It's an ideal piece of property, and then he was renting 125 acres plus other land that he owned. And um, so his plan was based on that 125 acres, largely because it's irrigated. Right. And so he lost that. So actually putting together a plan that cash flows is not easy anymore. You know, so they know just, you know, they know just what they need to do um, to put him out of business. Yeah. But... I told the lawyer, um, if you just sit back waiting to file a discrimination claim, you know, and you're not doing something else to try to to deal with it, I would forget it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was probably the the biggest frustration of that case is Mm -hmm. that it just took so long Mm -hmm. and so many farmers passed away or became too old Mm -hmm. or the amount of the settlement they got was Mm-hmm. Not anywhere near what they needed because
0: you Man. had to have
2: perfect paperwork mm-hmm. to win mm-hmm. that case. Yeah, as you well know.
0: Yes, yes, and the 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 thing that was so sad about the case too. It was good. The government had to pay out some money. Yeah. A lot of the farmers who should have gotten it didn't. Right. Some of those who got it shouldn't have gotten yeah. it. But um, uh, the fact that that um uh, they the lawyers realized files, filing an A claim was easy, easy money for them. Right? Uh, they didn't have to do much to it. And uh, the other place where a huge mistake was made uh, and the lawyers pushed it, oh, you don't have to um, list every act of discrimination you experience, just use one. And then in the end, those farmers were told they didn't get the payment and they said, well, um, you could, you only got money for the type of discrimination you listed in your claim. And right. well, they could have put 10 or more in there. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, so it was just yeah. sad that, that um, things happened the way they did. And then those farmers, I mean, what else could they do? They thought right. they would get their debt written off if they were successful. So no one was trying to get rich, just yeah. trying to yeah. actually get a a way to start again. And that's hurting a lot of them even to today.
1: Yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. the, just for the record,
2: that's the Pickford v. Glickman
0: lawsuit
2: for people that want to go deeper into that. Yeah, absolutely. And it also triggered uh, discrimination cases on behalf
0: of Hispanic Mm -hmm. women. Uh, I mean,
2: we have seen discrimination across Mm -hmm. the board. Uh, If you wanted to be an organic farmer, Mm. you were discriminated against. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it was just pretty much anybody who was outside of the Mm -hmm. the good old boy Mm -hmm. network uh, or didn't have somebody on the local board Mm -hmm. that was uh, looking for a prime piece of land. Yeah.
0: See that, my experience back in, I can't remember, during the nineties, I had never dealt with a farmer who grew flowers. Mm-hmm. And he was a white farmer, Real University of Georgia even looked at him as an expert in the field. He, when he came to me, he had been trying, for, well, when he came to the area to, to go into the flower business, um, he apparently had a banker who was a friend. So he had all these demand notes at the bank and um, wanted to, the, the person who had been backing him, wanted them to get refinanced. And when he went to the local office, the guy told him he wasn't a farmer. So someone sent him to me, and when I looked at his records, and he kept perfect records, I'm going, oh my goodness, we shouldn't even be growing peanuts around here. (laughs) Because he had the the documentation to prove that he had made $10,000 net off an acre of flowers. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, this is—I'm right along with him now. We could make this the flower capital of the of the United yeah. States. Yeah. And um, so, I prepared his business plan, and he had per—like I said, he had perfect records. His wife was working with him, and um, the guy denied him, saying he wasn't a farmer. Mm. You know, so I called to the state office. And they, were, they knew that he was wrong with that. They said, if he's growing the flowers he's selling, then he is a farmer. So he denied him, the, again, saying he wasn't in a normal farming operation for Tilt County, Georgia. You know, so we got past that without having to go to a hearing. He, he denied him again, saying his labor costs were too high. The man hired seasonal labor you know, around Easter, Mother's Day, and all the big, big days, he would make, he would have to hire someone to come in to help. And uh, so they were not, I couldn't talk the state office into, to, um, you know, supporting me with that one. We had to go to a hearing. Now, I have to tell you that we didn't always have that relation, I didn't always have that relationship with someone in the state office that I could talk to them and try to get them to help change a decision that was made locally to keep from uh, having to go wait and go to a hearing, right. but um, you know that happened over years, and so I was helping the white and, and black. We even had a Hispanic farmer during those time during that time. But this guy was an expert expert at growing flowers, and you're gonna deny him and make him go through all this mess to try to get a loan, he eventually got it. You know, because it took me about 18 months to actually work through all of that red tape right. to help him get refinanced with the agency. But, um, you know, so it, it, that and what happened with the Spooners helped me to see that, because I thought white farmers didn't experience that kind of right. pushback. But it was working with those two farmers that helped me to realize is if you're poor, you know you you have a problem if you're not connected yeah. and you're poor you can forget it yeah yeah we've yeah. seen
2: that many times mm-hmm. and that that makes me want to talk a little bit about you know this piece that's been so important for us since that time mm-hmm. of the advocacy mm-hmm. on behalf mm-hmm. of the farming right that we've been trying to figure out how do we pass those skills on to the next generation because yes if they don't have advocates
0: Mm -hmm. They're going to have the
2: same problems we do. You're right. You're right. uh, Do you have thoughts or
0: ideas?
2: (laughs) We've tried every way we can think of over in North Carolina, but... uh, uh.
0: I tell you, Michael, you know, I think I told you earlier today that I had to come to the realization that um, young people don't work the same way we did. And how do you... How do you get them to understand that you can't do it all on the phone? You can't do it all on a computer where you're not interacting with the family and so forth and the people in the agencies. So that one is one I've been struggling with. And um, I try in different ways, like the day when I was talking, I kept saying for young people, Mm -hmm. I'll try to pass on a lesson. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's the way I ended up having to back away from the young people I'm working mm-hmm. with and that somebody else young to try to help deal with the person who that that I can talk to and help try to pass some of those. Uh, so right. those lessons on what I don't have time to do and wish I had time. For right now, is to get out in the field with them. You know, going into those homes to visit That's and right. talk
2: with the farmers. Yeah, the kitchen table was mm-hmm. always the place where we would sit down, mm-hmm. and just get the shoebox out mm-hmm. and go through it, right. and talk to the family, and mm-hmm. see what they wanted to do, and just yep. hear their story. Yep, they yep. needed yep. someone to listen to them.
0: You're right, and I tell the staff all the time. You know, I can look at yourself as a resource for those people. I, I tell them how through the years they used to print the the foreclosed housing from VA in the in the paper print here out of Atlanta. And I would get it every Wednesday because the list was there. Not that I needed it or was trying to make a sale, but I didn't know who I would run into in one of those counties that needed that information. And with a VA loan you didn't have to make a down payment. You just pay the closing costs. Right. You know, so it was a way to, for someone who's trying to get a house, you know. So I made myself a resource by trying to learn as much about everything as I can. And I told them when people really feel you care and they help you and you get, and you're out there with them, you can see other things that need to be done. You can get all kind of backing for that because now they think you really feel the care that you have. For, for them and their operations. So, mm-hmm. now how you get folks away from computers to, to make that happen is, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. you can't. get
2: out in the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's an important lesson right
0: there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, because, and then you begin to like it. So, mm-hmm. you know.
2: And, and we found, and I guess you found as well, is that the best advocates that we've ever worked with were the ones who had gone through it themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yes. You know? Yep. Because mm-hmm.
2: then you know all the tricks mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. know the language.
0: hmm Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: So do you think that that's something that might come around in this next generation of of like the federation or mm-hmm. even at your new operation is that yeah.
0: uh, we're gonna have to find some someone i know at FarmAid they've been trying to talk about advocacy training see yeah. we had good training True. in those early years and, yeah. and so you had farmers legal action mm-hmm. group and and the training manuals they put together yeah. for us you know and they were always accessible Uh, we need to try to get back to some of that because you don't just automatically know. But if you know, you can pick up a a phone and call Randy or You can call someone else, you know, and um, to really be helpful. And see, there's one thing that was happening during those years um, that I was working. I couldn't reveal it back then, um, but it was such a good uh, help for the organizing we were doing. So, we had the opportunity to get a grant from USDA. And they told me to work with five bars in five counties who were having problems. That's all they wanted me to do. But I'm an organizer, finally I got some money that I can bring on a couple of staff people. And so there was a What Works Conference USDA was having up in Vermont in March. And I remember snow was still on the ground. They told me I had to talk with these two people, one from Washington, one from Georgia State Office, about this grant. It was like $100,000. 88, I think, was the year. And uh, so as I sat down with them while there to talk, I just, they telling me how this is gonna work and how we're gonna work together to help these farmers. And I, I would stop them and say, wait, 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 wait. I said, you're trying to tell me that Farmers Home Administration is going to work with me to help a farmer and not against me? And they would say, yeah, and go on. I did that three times. And the guy from Georgia said, now surely it hasn't been that bad. I said, oh yes, it has. So the next meeting was held in the state office in Georgia. And um, so the state director, um, we talked about it. He asked me about different offices and whether or not I was having any problems there. But I think the guy who was in Vermont from Georgia made up his mind he was going to show me it could be different. The number of complaints went down because I would call him every time I ran into a problem and he didn't know, his coworkers didn't know, he was actually helping me to solve some of the stuff. It was a crazy thing. He taught me um, the ins and outs of that Farm and home plan, you know, and where they look, what percentage of expenses to income, That's and right. where that number should fall, and all it just taught me so much that I ended up teaching to federation staff in the other states, you know. So I had that going right. to to combat some of and deal with some of the racism that was going on in the in the area. Um, and not have it all get bogged down in waiting months for hearings. Right. right you know. Right. Yeah.
2: So. I mean, if you can avoid that, that's the better outcome because the farmer just wants to get alone. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, there were a lot of things, and I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell. Yeah. I didn't want to help. I didn't want his coworkers to know that right. he was really helping me. Sure. Absolutely. You know.
2: And you know, part of the irony of that period was that. You had black farmers being denied a loan, so therefore they couldn't be successful, and you had white farmers who were being given too much money, yeah. and they ended up going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. So I mean, wow. that's the irony of that situation: mm-hmm. is that in both cases, uh, these farmers yeah. were going out of business either by discrimination against them. Or by encouraging them to take more money than they really mm-hmm. needed to mm-hmm. get bigger, get out. Yeah, yep.
0: yeah, yep. In the case of new communities, we were we were denied, and um, and doing and putting together the case, our Pickford claim. Yeah we found that the big plantations in the area were getting them because we had to be, you had to be compared to a white farmer that got the loans you didn't get. So in our case, because of the land holding, right. we had to compa- be compared to some of the plantations in the area. And that's when we found that, that those big plantations were getting loans that were being denied to us. We wanted to put in the irrigation no, the answer was no, but the plantations were getting them. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's so crazy. We learned so much with that claim that we submitted in in our case. Right. Cuz when we were when we were foreclosed and had to quickly get everything off the property, you know, just too much was going on for us to really look back. What we knew we faced discrimination, but actually delving into it to be able to prove what happened, it happened with the Pickford case, yeah. Yeah. but um, but it's it's really something to to look back at the document where it's been well documented, showing you know what they did to us to to keep us from uh, yeah. being able to succeed.
2: And have you had any luck? We've tried organizing farmers to run for the county committees oh. to try to change that culture of who gets to decide at the county mm-hmm. level because that's at the end of the day mm-hmm. they have enormous power over yeah. who gets a loan and like you say in many cases it's the well-connected larger mm-hmm. operations mm-hmm. and then they say gee we're out of money yep you know
0: um, yep yeah sorry
2: you just came too late but mm-hmm. i mean you had any luck in trying to get people on those committees
0: not in recent years yeah. in earlier years um in two different counties, I talked with farmers and got them organized and ran real quiet campaigns yeah. so that they wouldn't know what we were doing. And right. so that in two counties, we actually got them elected and then they worked to get them off. You know, the the um, in one case, um, when the farmer ran for re-election, the uh, CD, the county CED. Um, Decided to work against him. So you'd mail the ballots in and they wouldn't even reach the office. You know, he was the one picking up the mail. Mm.
2: Um,
0: So and then I'll never forget he um, he and the young lady who was really good, the young black lady in in the office. She was just, all of the farmers really loved her because she, she didn't let anyone be in This white and black farmers for, for getting paperwork in for stuff. And she knew the programs like the back of her hand. Well, he didn't like her. So he tried to say they were, he didn't say arguing, but anyway, he said the only thing he knows he was getting up off the floor. Like she knocked him out. She would not do that. And uh, so the the the, the per- black person we put, put on the committee supported her. So he wanted him off. And uh, really, it's so crazy. He won the election and by 15 votes. He, of course, there are more uh, white landowners than black. And, uh, but he won by 15 votes. And so the white woman that they had run for that position too, said she was gonna appeal. And this guy, the CED, got up during that meeting and said, get with me, I'll help you. You know, so they made all those calls to absent landowners uh, from the office so that he wouldn't get get, uh, re-elected. And, of course, he tried to appeal everything, and USDA just said, oh, there's nothing we can do.
2: Well, can we imagine a different future? Is there a path? I mean, we're, you know, we're still living with the legacy of a past. Yes. And now we may be in a reaction
0: to that (laughs) legacy. Yeah.
2: But uh, can you imagine that we can have federal policy or take steps that make it different and better for the future? Do you have thoughts about that? What do we need to do, Shirley?
0: (laughs) There have been times when I thought with some of the younger guys, we could try to bring that change, but there's still a lot of distrust. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I don't know how we get past that, Michael. I just yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, you'll find yeah. one or two who can get along really well, but um there's so few black farmers now yeah. that um, no one trusts anyone. You know, I don't know how we get past that. I really don't. And more was done in the earlier years to really try to help bring some of that to an end. You know, in the Federation, the problem we had, though, is that um, white farmers would come into the office for the help, but they would, you can't get them to attend a meeting with, with anyone. And I'm sure that goes back to some things that happened. In earlier years, I know we've had a lot of uh, white people in Baker County to come up to us and say, "You know, we knew what happened to your father was wrong. It was bad, but we couldn't step forward because we would have been targeted too. You know, so."
2: Well, but the excuse of the just following orders is Mm -hmm. not enough. Yeah, not enough. Mm at least I think I'm hearing some hopeful ideas of kind of bringing back the kind of community dialogue mm-hmm. where we talk about racial equity in an honest way among mm-hmm. different generation and different races. I mm-hmm. mean, do you think that that could help? I mean, particularly for a new generation that doesn't know hardly any of this past. Yeah. I mean,
0: you know, the if you take the uh, new communities project, this is that's part of what we want that place to be used yeah. for. Yeah. To you know, a place with a slave history. Right. You know, what better place than to try to do some healing? Yeah. Together, where and I've said to to black and white people in the areas when I was at you know, at rural development. Uh, There's a Miller County, Georgia, and um, they've done some stuff there, but I've tried to say to folks, so we have the civil rights history. We have the Civil War and slave history. Um, Why can't we build on that? You know, where we highlight all of it. That's right. And uh, people, tourists would love to come in and we can't get companies to come in, but we can use that history if we both understand you know, because it can't be a one-sided thing. That's right. You know, and in, and 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 white people really need to be able to s- discuss white privilege.
2: Yeah.
0: And and we need to be able to to listen to some things that that that's hard for all of us to to deal with, and then see if we can now place that over here and try to build together. You know, and not let that keep us from being able to come together, but. You know, with this new administration now really trying to it seems, bring misunderstanding mm-hmm. and bring back racism, it's going to make the job even harder. You know,
2: but maybe, maybe with the fire getting hotter a little bit, maybe, yeah. maybe there's an opportunity. <laughs> That's you're what right. I hope, you're you know? right. You're right. You're mean, right. Sometimes it takes. What what is the old saying that, uh, you know, when it really gets. Bad. Sometimes mm-hmm. the best in people step forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And maybe yeah. that's
2: what can happen.
0: Yep. Yep. You're right. You know, when when all the black people were in the same boat, whether you were a doctor, lawyer, whatever, yeah. we were in the. You couldn't eat in restaurants. You right. couldn't stay in hotels and all. Then. This was a, a good mix to be able to come together to force change. That's we right. did it. That's right. You know, so if we were willing to, when we were all in the same boat, it was easy to do it. That's right. Because everybody faced the then right. a few people came outside yeah. of that. Yeah. They could buy the things they needed to buy. And then they felt like and they moved, could move to the other side of town. And all of a sudden, didn't uh, really work to continue. Forcing the change that needs to be forced. But we, we've learned lessons.
2: Right. You know. Yeah. That was our experience with the mm-hmm. United Farmers Organization. We had black and white and Native American mm-hmm. farmers all working together because they had the same problem. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we passed that credit act, yeah. they all went back to their corners. Mm-hmm
0: yeah they
2: got taken care of and they weren't going to yep. cooperate either. and it was
0: beautiful the way the groups worked together i remember when um when farm aid had the farmers and ranchers right. congress that's you right. know um i remember organizing farmers in south carolina and georgia and that's the right. delegates um went to the congress together and acted as a group that's right you know those two states um I can't remember the makeup, but it was pretty near um, um, they probably had a few more black farmers than whites, mm-hmm. but we had a, a good number of white farmers there, and they acted as a group. That's right. and uh, if we could get the organizations to pull together more, you know, we were all it just seems we were we were together more in training and That's so right. forth, and I guess that was because of flag. Yeah, and, and common, land laws, common problem. hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's going to take some of that, though, yeah. to bring the change right. that we need. I don't yeah. know how we put it together again. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I was thinking one thing I wanted to, I mean, this has been a good discussion, and um, the uh, uh, something that I think could get more attention and that young people would probably appreciate is the whole new communities effort and i Mm -hmm. was thinking uh, earlier today when i saw that wonderful arc of justice film Mm -hmm. what was really motivating uh people uh, as young people you were Mm -hmm. to really take that approach of thinking more in terms of cooperation and even more even communal uh, Mm -hmm. thinking Uh, and because i think young people are Interested in that, yeah. especially when it looks like it's so hard to get started in something like farming now, with mm-hmm. the land prices being high and all of the difficulties. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's a dead idea. Yeah,
0: yeah. See, when so civil rights movement, we've we gotten we got to the point where we could uh, ride on the bus and not have to sit in the back and all of the rights. So, um, so do you just stop? Or do you keep looking for and pushing for more things that can bring the change that's needed in communities? Um, we chose to keep moving forward with it. And so, um, but then you'd have these cases where people being kicked out of the homes they were in because they sent their child to, um, to integrate the white school, or they went downtown to try to register the vote and all. Um, so, I, I'm, what I'm saying is the things we were still having to deal with um, that you could look at and say mm, maybe discrimination, maybe not, but but you know the system uh, was designed to keep us down. So you start. That's what. I, that's why I tell organizers, you know, the young people, when you're out there with the people, and and you you have the the attention of the people, because you are also helping them, then together you come up with ideas to, to keep doing things to move forward. And uh, so um, so ideas, you know, everyone can contribute to something, um, something good. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's how it comes about. It doesn't come about because Shirley Sherratt said, go and do this or that, but sitting around talking you know, you'd be amazed at what comes up. And then you keep talking about it, then this is something we should try to pursue. And it can lead to, to, to things that are good for the community and good for the area. We don't do enough talking. That's why when that stuff happened to me and I'm talking, I can't remember, it wasn't the president, one of, you know, we as, as black and white people, we don't talk much together. You know, one of the tactics I used when I started organizing farmers, most of them didn't talk. They'd show up at a feed place or somewhere and stand at the back of the truck and talk. But just to sit down in a meeting and talk. So I started pulling farmers together. I had some, um, they called them vistas back then, and um, had 15 counties, 15 slots. No, 17 slots, 15 counties. So the tactic that I used was to to call me have meetings. So I had the VISTAs actually getting these farmers to attend meetings. You sit around and talk. Then the the next thing they needed to do was to move outside of the little circle they actually um, move in. So farmers in one county, you know, each of the counties meeting. Then I got to meet together. And more things are possible. Then and then I, th- I would take them over to Epps, Alabama, to the Federation's annual meet. Mm-hmm. So now they're going outside the state and, and talking with other farmers about what they mm-hmm. what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it always leads to some progress in getting some of the things done that need to be done. They're talking to each other found. They were farmers when I first started organizing that this would have a good peanut crop and wouldn't tell others what they did. That's right. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm
1: thinking too of uh, as you were talking there, um, I'm from Minnesota, and and I'm sure it's not. I know it's not limited to there, but we've got an issue of, of with immigration in this mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. Uh, especially uh, like in where I'm from. I think it has the second largest population of Somalis coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another set of tensions around there mm-hmm. <laughs> that require. And there you have the religion thing coming mm-hmm. into it on top of it. So another another challenge that we're, we're
0: facing there too. Yeah, if we would talk to each other, then you get to know me, I would get to know you. And where in some situations I wouldn't wanna work with you because I know you well and feel I know your heart, then we can figure out how to move forward together. But we don't, we'd rather keep these prejudices tight and it doesn't allow us to get out to to interact with people we don't know. Mm-hmm.
2: So part it's the, the legacy of the past. Mm-hmm. We have to somehow find that courage mm-hmm. to talk to each other again. Yep. And, and certainly exactly what you said is what mm-hmm. we found was if you can identify a common problem and get people to sit down and Maybe share a meal together. We yes,
0: had, we yes. had farmers
2: sitting down who, black and white, never eat mm-hmm,
0: together, mm-hmm. and
2: that—that's an important ritual to do. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah,
2: glad you raised that because that
1: is definitely even just the the food itself. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that uh, you know now I go to eat occasionally at Somali uh, restaurants mm-hmm. and you meet the people mm-hmm. there and. Get exposed to the mm-hmm. their cuisine even makes a difference if you're yep. open to it and yep. accepting those differences as uh, bringing that diversity that brings strength ultimately to, mm-hmm. our, to our efforts
0: yep. absolutely yeah Well so.
1: this has been a really sweet discussion I is there anything more any of you either of you would want to say or bring up does anything come to mind Michael
2: Johnny. <laughs> Parting
0: wisdom? Sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. Yeah.
2: But, I but I
0: think both of us could probably come up with some things based on the work we've done yeah. the last 50 years. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was so impressed. I got to go to the Federation Southern Co-ops the 50th yeah.
2: anniversary.
1: What an inspiring gathering
2: Yeah. was
0: nice to
1: see yep. what's been accomplished. And mm-hmm. I've heard you mentioned before in a conversation you two and the. That you got through the difficulties, that that hasn't all been smooth oh, sailing and not at all.
0: Gotta, uh, yeah, because so. at one point we thought the organization wouldn't survive. That that was somewhere. I worked there for 25 years, but things got really bad, hmm. and um, I came on after they had gone through a rough period, and then we had more rough periods. Mm-hmm. But here we are, you know. Many, many years later, and it's still there. And now young people basically have it. That's right.
1: That's mm-hmm. right. And are young people stepping up with the Federation somewhat?
0: Uh, yeah, the, I think Quinny is, is doing yeah. a good He had he's a lot of himself. stuff to work yes. through. To, to It's not totally smooth yet, but he's worked through a lot to keep it going. Good.
2: Well, I hope it's not so long till I see you. Yes. Charles as well.
0: You got to come down.
2: I want to, bad.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) I'm very grateful for your both participating in this and for your work, especially uh, that you're still doing it. Surely we're so grateful for that.
2: And to
1: to Charles for all you've done. When I think of Charles, I... Uh, so think again of the Arc of Justice movie. We're going to make a point of putting mm-hmm. a link to that at the end of this interview, so people mm-hmm. can see that too.
2: So, yeah. thanks both of you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, The singing you heard there at the end, well, the beginning and the end, with my husband and Emory. My husband was one of the uh, founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And Emory, who um, was singing with him, um, he works out on the farm with us, and um, he was the second wave of freedom singers. So, the film crew was inside one of the cabins um, filming my interview, and then all the singing started outside. <laughs> so they ran outside to catch that too. But uh, you know, Emory makes up a lot of songs, and, and um, he and my husband would often sing uh, some of the freedom songs from the earlier years. So good to be good to be here with you share a little more of um, the work that we have done through the years. I should tell you that my husband came to Southwest Georgia. uh, He was the first field secretary for SNCC and chose Southwest Georgia to do his work. He's the only one who came into a community and stayed. So our work has gone on. He, I didn't actually meet him until 1965 after my father's death, but the work has been nonstop through the years. We couldn't get very much attention because everything shifted to Birmingham and, and other cities, but everybody forgot that a lot of the training and a lot of the lessons that were used in later years actually got started in Albany. And then we had Somewhat. Dr. King did an interview with some magazine, I've, I've tried to run out where did this start, uh, and he said he failed in Albany. So the word then went out that Albany's movement was a failure. So if you go to the museum in DC, they have it recorded there that Albany's movement ended unsuccessful in 1962. Well, our work hasn't stopped. You can see from some of the things we've, we've been doing through the years, it's been nonstop. And it's the only one that's been nonstop, and he's the only one who actually came into um, an area and stayed there to continue the work. Um, so we're finally getting a little attention. A few groups have come through, and they, I guess that plantation, uh, <laughs> even though I was against the plantation with that big 13,000 foot antebellum house, uh, it has brought more attention to some of the accomplishments of the the Southwest Georgia movement here in later years. So, um, you know, I grew up on a farm. And the last thing, if you had asked me back in 1965, what do you think your life's work would be? I probably would have said a teacher in the North because I had no intention. See, we picked cotton, we did all that back-breaking work on the farm. We, our family owned the land that we, um, we had. My grandmother's family, we still have it. My grandmother's family um, located there I'm not sure when, but I know that I found them in the 1870 census in Baker County sharecropping with the goal of buying land. And they actually worked together to help each family member uh, get the land that they had. And I've, you know, I've talked to my uncles and so forth in later years. And it turns out my great grandfather, um, they referred to him as the judge. So anytime there were disputes in the family, he said what would happen and everyone would abide by. So they really worked together to acquire somewhere between four and 5,000 acres of land with membership being an individual's name and not being held uh, as one piece, but all there in the area. I didn't grow up with white people in my community. you know, the only time we would interact with some of them, when well, we had this terrible sheriff, you would need to look it up. Baker County, Georgia It's still known as the, the state of Baker, because they didn't abide by anybody else's rules. Uh, and we had these terrible sheriffs. Um, before my lifetime, it was Claude Screws, and there's something he did that impacts us today. He lynched a black man, and the strange thing, is an all-white federal jury, actually convicted him not of murder, but of depriving Bobby Hall of his civil rights. So he appealed it all the way to the US Supreme Court, where um, the the um, I guess I'm am I doing something wrong here? I hear some feedback. Maybe I'll stand back. He um his conviction was overturned and um, the justice who wrote the opinion said, because he was he was charged with depriving Bobby Hall of his civil rights, you had to prove that um, as he was murdering him, he was thinking of depriving him of his civil rights. So the whole issue of proven intent came from that case. They talk about proven intent a lot when Bobby, when um, the guy out in uh, California was beaten Uh, Rodney King, and they even used that a lot, Uh, Bobby Kennedy did during the um, civil rights movement as a reason to not um, do what we expected them to do legally to help deal with situations. And then later, the gator, he wanted to be known as gator, as an alligator and made a sound like an alligator He killed a number of black people and there was just nothing we could ever do, even though you had these large plantations there. Um, Itchoway Plantation was owned by Robert Woodruff, 33,000 acres. Um, Pineland Plantation owned by the Mellons. And you'd have presidents coming in to hunt on these plantations from time to time. Yet the Gator had us where you were afraid to just about go anywhere. Um, and then people could. He had a speed trap. I thought until my incident with USDA in 2010, I thought it was just black folks. I was sitting there talking with some people from Miller County, and they were saying, "No, you had to have money to ride through there." Um, so we grew up with that, with these sheriffs and and really terrible situations. So it was it was good for us to be able to stay. In our little area, you know, and farm and so forth, um, and to support and support each other. Uh, so I grew up thinking, "This ain't going." I'm, I'm getting out of here as soon as I get out of high school. I'm leaving. I'm going. I was applying to schools in the north because I didn't want to take a chance on meeting my future husband in one of the schools from the South, because I didn't plan to live my life in the South. Um, we, my father didn't realize what I was doing. He would have been happy. And there were five girls. He and my mother kept wanting a son, and every time it was another girl. And then finally, during my senior year of high school, he convinced my mother to try just one more time for his son. And my father didn't live to see him because um, he was murdered in March of 65. And my brother was born on June 6 of uh, 65. But, so I was in, I couldn't tell my folks that I didn't want to live in the South. They would not have been happy about that, especially my father. Um, so that was my little secret. And, um, but on the night of his death, I, I prayed that I could do something. I knew I couldn't. One thought was get a gun and go kill the man. I, I, I couldn't even fire a weapon, but my father tried to teach us to do it one day, and my sister was just shooting. And as soon as he put the gun in my hand, I started crying because I, I, I'm just afraid of guns. But anyway, um, on the night of his death, I made a commitment to stay in the South, which is not what I intended to do, and devote my life to working for change. Now, I didn't know what I would do, but I made that commitment and knew somehow I would figure that out. And of course, when SNCC came into, into Baker County to help us start the movement there, that I knew then that was the answer. So I made a commitment to the area not just to Baker County, but to the area. And um, gosh, when I look back over a lot of the work that's been done, a lot of the places I've gone. Now, when I made that commitment, I thought I was um, making a commitment for a life that I probably wouldn't want to live, but because a life where you know, I'm totally devoted to what work, the work. But what I didn't know, because it wasn't clear in my mind, I was 17 years old, and um, but I thought it'd be a life so different from what I envisioned when I thought I would be living in the north. And I tell you, I tell young people all the time, it's some of the most rewarding work you could ever do. At times, it was dangerous. Um, One Saturday, I was just pregnant with our daughter and all of the folks working with us in the area were out distributing a newsletter that um, we would prepare. And um, I stayed at the house and young guy, Grady was maybe eight, nine years old. He stayed there with me. He he felt like he was our our son. Um, And some white guys came in and actually set the house on fire with me in it. Um, it was, and they, they actually, they were so bold, they, they, I'm assuming they were attending a conference or something, even had their conference uh, badge, or name badge on them when they came in and did it. Now there's a funny part to that. It's dangerous, but a little funny. When the, <laughs> you know, my husband, even today, well, he's having health issues now, But he's just, changing a tire was not really something he was good at, or anything dealing with a car. So we had to try to get a few things out of the house to go to Baker County to my mother's to spend the night. And about four miles out of the city, we had a flat tire. And it was one of those really, really dark nights. Um, So he pulled to the side of the road, and we're just sitting there. It's gonna take him forever to try to figure out what to do to change the tire. I probably knew how to change the tire better than he did. He grew up in, in Petersburg, Virginia. I grew up out in the rural areas where you had to do what you had to do. But I was patient. I wouldn't say anything. And then this truck drove in behind us, and um, pulled over. You know, right pulled over right beside, uh, behind our car. It was two white guys, and they had been drinking, obviously. So, um, you know, what do you do? You think they didn't get us today, during the day. They were looking for him, by the way, when they came to um, and set the house on fire. I'm fairly certain they were coming to kill him that day, but couldn't find him. Um, So I'm thinking this is it. Um, They were laughing and carrying on. They saw that we had a flat tire. And here I was thinking we were about to be murdered and they changed the tire and went on. <laughs> you know, they saved the day for us. They didn't recognize him. Um, had they recognized him, I'm not sure what would have happened. Should I stop for a second and let them deal with it? So
2: you you keep
0: going. Okay. They're, they're going to help with that. Okay. So um, if you're going to, Work in the rural area, it means working with farmers. And um, not, well, you have other people there too, but mainly farmers, whether they were sharecroppers or whether they were landowners. Um, and I say to people now, you know, rural, I know, because that's where, I, you know, I spent so much time there. Doing that work and getting from my father's, my father and my grandparents the lessons of owning land and how we needed to be thinking and what we needed to be doing. I look back, I've, I've pulled on those through the years as I've worked with farmers, um, not only in Southwest Georgia but across the South. Um, so diving into that work, and I say to young people working with us now, if you're out there with the people and you're sincere about working with them and helping them, you maybe you, you go in and you think one thing is gonna happen, but you get the feel of, of the folks and what it is that's needed. You can't go in, I tell them all the time, you can't just go into a, to an area to, to organize and uh, think you're gonna go in and do what you want to do. You'll never make it. You have to get to know the people, they have to get to the point where they believe in you and believe that you are sincere about wanting to help them and you do a few things that really help them and you have folks who will follow you wherever you need to go to accomplish some of the things that that, that, that community needs. But a lot of folks wanna go in just with their work and it'll never happen the way it should if you don't involve the people in it. So being from the area, being from the rural area, knowing how my father felt when it was time to harvest peanuts. See, peanuts was the cash crop. You grew the corn and the other stuff, but you really looked for peanuts to um, to bring the money in back, back in those days when you were initially had mules, and I helped out on the farm one year with the mule and then my father, my grandfather bought a tractor that we were able to use um, in the farm work. But you know, you can understand the pressure farmers were under not being able to borrow, getting a little money to try to make it work, and then having to harvest what's gonna feed the family the rest of the year. Um, But anyway, you get that when you, when you work with people. I, I can remember days when I probably worried about a farmer's uh, crop more than they did because I did their business plan. And then I knew what they had to come in with at the end of the year. So I, I would help design training that they needed to try to get the results that were needed. And then actually developing co-op. I have to tell you, the first co-op I organized was in Baker County, where I'm from. And all these guys had been my father's friend, and I thought, this is gonna really be tough. Um, Because they knew me from a baby. So one of the things they wanted to do was feed a pig, feed a pigs, and the, the, the hogs we got from the Heifer Project were actually delivered to West Georgia, and we had to go up to West Georgia to pick them up. But leading up to actually getting the hogs, I'm trying to say to them, you have to be willing to be trained in order to get these hogs. Oh, we know how to raise hogs. So I tried and I tried. They didn't want to, but the hogs were coming and they actually came in. And um, they decided that three farmers would get five sows and a boar each and then pass on two for one. So as bad luck would have it, the guy from the Heifer Project came the day after the hogs were delivered. And these guys had chosen the farmers who would get the initial hogs. We went to the first farm, the conditions were terrible. We went to the second farm, the conditions were terrible. The third farm, that farmer had actually bragged in the meeting about being, he, he said, I got my hogs on concrete. And he's all this, so I almost said to the guy, as we were riding to the third farm, you're about to see the best farm. I'm so glad I didn't do that. I am so glad. We got there. He did have them separated from his other hogs. So he's explaining, he said, you see that part of the out there? And he said, that's coming from my kitchen sink. OK, <laughs> there was glass everywhere. You know, he put them in a pasture with all this broken glass. And then he said he's so proud of what he had. He said to the guy, uh, you want to see my other hogs? Of course, he said yes. So he went out. There was a shed with some peanut uh, wagons under them and the hogs were laying under there and uh he kept he tried to call in, he had feed, they didn't move. So he went over and kicked them and they got up hopping. Something's obviously wrong there. And then he said, I have hogs on, on, uh, on concrete. You want to see them? Yeah. The concrete was all broken up and it's a wonder they didn't have cuts all over them from that. And then that water, he had misting on them, was running out and there was a big puddle that the other hogs were wallowing in. So the guy from the Heifer Project said to me, there's some major problems. And I said, let me, let me tell you what they are. I wanted him to know I knew better. I said, let me tell you all, I mean what they are. And then allow me, I think now I can finally get them to get into some training. I called the University of Georgia Extension, and this was around 87, and he wouldn't even talk to me. He told me there was an agent from Fort Valley, where Fort Valley had only about five agents in the whole state. Um, So I decided if these guys are gonna get training, I have to do it. And um, so in the very next meeting, um, I started training them. And they said, You know how to raise hogs, don't you? Well, I knew all along. I grew up on a farm. Back when we had pump water and didn't even have an electric well, so taking care of the animals was something you learned to do. And when I started telling them when to clip uh, eye teeth and when to castrate and all that, I tell you, I didn't ever have another problem with that group of men. <laughs> you know? And in fact, they must've passed the word on to some others because I didn't have a problem with men thinking I didn't know enough about farming to to actually work with and help them. But um, so you saw on the film where um, there there were lots of problems with people who share cropped. And I mentioned to you too, that we had two major plantations in the area Woodruff, his name is all over stuff up here, but conditions on his 33,000 acre plantation were terrible for black people. So trying to deal with that, and even at Poundham, where the Poundham plantation owned by the Melons, the, the horse's barn was better than any house any black person was living on, in, you know, on his plantation. Um, so while working with all that and seeing people get kicked off the land, I should tell you too, my sisters, I graduated that year, but my sisters integrated the, the white school and um, just took some terrible, terrible, um, they didn't beat them, but they would put tacks in the seats and, and do all kinds of things and then signs all up in the school saying another coon gone, referring to our Father, you know, so we were dealing with all of this, but knowing that we couldn't stop. You know, you had to keep fighting to make it better um, for others, for ourselves and others through the years. Um, But anyway, um, developing, I've I've started trying to add some other stuff and and forgot why I was telling you some of all of that. But, um, oh, why we created new communities. So as you saw on the film, when um, we we decided something would have to be done because you go to mass meeting, here's another family that's been put off the land and somebody else where you gotta try to help find a place for them to stay and a job. And that's why in 1968, we got the funding to send eight people to Israel to study the kibbutz and um, we, they came back and we started having meetings. They came back in June, and um, we started having meetings in July of '68, and um, and created new communities. Um, we and then immediately got an option on six thousand. It said five thousand seven hundred thirty-five acres, more or less. They were taxing us based on sixty-five hundred acres. We say. 6,000 more or less. And see, we talk about the fact that the land was owned together uh, as a land trust, but we don't talk about the, the, the way we designed it so that it. we talked about how we work together. We, the, each area, we had committees to deal with each area, farming, health, education, economic development, and um, people, different, individuals um, volunteered to work on different areas. And you don't hear about all of the others simply because once we couldn't get the money that was denied us um, by by the government, but less the Maddox making the decisions. Then farming was what we started doing. We couldn't, we had even, we chose the villages where villages would be located. And just to give you some idea of the size, it's about, it was, we had about much land as the state of Rhode Island, Rhode Island has. That's how much land it was. And uh, so we planned every phase uh, where industry would be, industry would locate. We had a railroad that went through with a spur onto the land, uh, what kind of health system, what kind of education system. We would have with the farm, we operated with the farm committee. We had a farm manager, but you you would come, and we met every Monday night, the farm committee, and to make decisions. Everyone understood you could question anything we were doing in the farm committee. But once we were out there working, the farm manager had the last word. You know, we could discuss it once we got back the next Monday night, but that individual had the last word on what we were would do and what we would we were doing. Um, we had a 75 brew operation and we actually would take those hogs in to be slaughtered, inspected. We bring them back to the farm. We made uh, cured meats and sausage. We built an old uh, fashioned smokehouse right there behind, beside uh, US 19. And that brought a lot of people in to look at what we were doing. We made, we grew sugar cane, and we set up a syrup making operation right there beside US-19 and did a lot of other things that that helped me in later years as I dealt with other farmers. Um, And then we lost everything in 85 and I started working with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and um, had the opportunity then to not only use what I had learned and to help develop other things with the Federation to help farmers across the, the South. Um, like I said, if you had asked me back in 1969 '65, I would, could not envision the life I've, ha- I've lived. And someone, I was asked just before the program, how do you, How do you manage to stay in it? I've been doing this work about 52 years now. And um, when you make a commitment to an area and you you really make a commitment to the area, that means you're gonna do what you have to do. And then you look up and where you thought it would lead you to a life of just um, working, probably not enjoying the work, but knowing you had to work. It it led me to a Kellogg Fellowship, for example, where I had the opportunity for three years to to, um, travel in many places in the world to learn things that would help me become a better leader. It led me to being chosen as the first black person to serve as State Director of Rural Development in Georgia for USDA. And you know what happened with that. <laughs> but you, you learn in every situation. There was so much I learned being there even the short time I was there. I was, there was a, just one example. A white farmer that I had helped when I was working with the Federation, he was calling into the state office, um, because he was, he was trying to buy a house. And um, I heard the secretary trying to, to steer the call away from me, but I told her, no, I'll put the call through, let me talk to him. And um, so I asked him, Ronald, how are you doing? He told me they had taken part of his tongue. He had had a, a situation with cancer and uh, he had lost the land. And he was trying to get this house that the agency had, but he had been denied. So um, he was asking for my help. I said, i tell you what, let me, get, um, let me get the file. This was like a Monday. And I said, I will get back to you by Friday. I need to figure out if anything can be done. He had filed bankruptcy and um, he had been, um, he, had, he had done all that he needed to do with that, but he didn't send the paperwork in anywhere showing that um, he had completed that process. Um, he owed the IRS a little money, but it was only $1,800. And uh, one other thing was there. So I told the the program officer in the state office, told him to get the file, and then I want you to go through everything and come and sit down with me so that I can get back to him on what was possible for him. Now, based on my work and the, the things I had done through the years, no black person was about to get that loan. And I wouldn't have gotten the information that I got in trying to deal with that case. So by Friday, the program officer still hadn't come to me. I don't know why it took him so long. And I told him, I said, I need to leave by two o'clock on Friday. So I need this before I go, because I want to call Ronald. So when he came, I called and told him, come on, you got to give me the information. I think he didn't want to tell me. But this is what, this was the answer to it. Um, he said, um, all he got to do is get the bankruptcy paperwork and submit that. He said, with the, the uh, money owed to the IRS, he said, if he um, arranged payments and pay on time for six months, he becomes eligible immediately, or he can pay it off now and become elig- eligible immediately. That's not something, I would never have gotten that kind of information if I hadn't served in that position. Uh, So even though in bad situations, um, some things happen, there's always a lesson there, always something you can learn that can be helpful now or later. And I look at it that way. Now, when the stuff happened with me, with Breitbart, You have to know that it was, I can't describe how I felt knowing that people all over this country thought I was this terrible person who would refuse to help a white farmer in my position as state director of rural development. That's the thing that really bothered me because I knew I had not done anything wrong. And I was actually here in the in Atlanta, attending a meeting with 1890 land grants when when I saw the first message and all these people t- emailing me saying um, that i you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, and I, I emailed back, this was like Thursday before the Monday everybody knew about. And I immediately sent all of that to Washington asking for help. And um, I didn't, you know, me, I'm thinking people are gonna do right by you. And all the time they were figuring out how to get rid of me. I didn't know that until that Monday. Um, but y'all yeah, don't know. Well, I guess I'm telling you that I've been on the civil rights trail since 1965. And even though I told um, the woman I was dealing with that um, you haven't heard the last from me, you know, when they they initially said, um, we'll put, you go on a, a administrative leave, but that only lasted about 45 minutes. And uh, they, I was there, I should tell you this other little thing, I'm not gonna keep going on, but, but uh, when I went to work for rural development, those individuals, you know, there was a reorganization of USDA in 96, so you could choose to work with the farmer part of it or with rural development. So all of those folks, most of them, had come over from farm, the farmer program side to work for rural development. Well you know, if I'd been out there working against I, guess, I was trying to help farmers and running in all these roadblocks with people from the farmer program side, this was my staff. <laughs> and I had. I had really, I mean, there were some things we really had to deal with just to get them to do the right thing about white far- black farmers. And then here I was, the director of the agency. But we, you know, we had become a real good working group by the time this happened. So when they put me on administrative leave and I said, well, what do I do now? Just go home and have a good rest. You know, I had worked in nonprofits all of my life and uh, didn't know that this was really firing. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, oh, they're gonna get the truth. They're gonna hear the truth and then we'll deal with no. So anyway, the staff said to me, um, cause I needed to go back to Athens and then home to Albany. They said, let one of us drive you. I said, no, I can do this. They said, can we pray? And I said, yes. So we got in a circle and prayed. And I was on my way then to the state office well, I got three calls before getting to Athens, and that's about a three and a half hour drive. First one, where are you, I said, you know, I'm just just getting started really, and said, um, Again, I'm trying to tell them that I helped the white farmer. He has his farm today because of me. We, we uh, became very good friends. They didn't want to hear any of that. And I said it every time one of them would get on the, on the phone with me, but no one was listening. Second call, I was coming through Atlanta here. That traffic out there was bad then. <laughs> it's terrible now. But um, that's when they told me the White House wanted me to resign. And then I was about 30 miles from Athens when they told me they wanted me to pull to the side of the road and use my Blackberry to submit my letter of resignation. That was really a low point. I told them I would do it. I said, but I want you to know you haven't heard the last from me. And uh, when I saw emails later on, they were, they were patting themselves on the back for taking care of the Shirley Sherrod problem quickly they were, they were so pleased with what they were doing and they didn't understand me when I said, I, I told them later I said, if I had to tell one person at a time for the rest of my life, I was gonna still put the truth out there. But you know, a young reporter here got me after midnight, midnight that night when I got home and actually put something on the wire that started to turn around. And then, of course, the next day when I was on CNN and the white farmer, his family called in, you know, then they understood what I meant about turning things around. (laughs) You can't, it was so terrible. You couldn't give up though. That's the other thing I, I wanna say, especially to young people doing this work, you cannot give up. Yeah, it seemed totally impossible to do anything about it, but I was determined. And by Wednesday, the Secretary of Ag had gone on air to apologize. By Thursday, after I had been on The View, the president called to apologize. You know, he he didn't quite use the word. I told the reporters afterwards, I said, um, you know, he's the president of the United States. He didn't actually say, I'm sorry but by the mere fact he called, I took that as an apology. You know, we got into a slight um, argument because he told me, oh, you know those things you've been putting out, those issues you've been putting out there this week, I'm well aware of them. I said, you don't understand them the way I do. So we kept going back and forth, oh, read my book. I said, you do not understand those issues the way I do. So we really got into a thing. On the only way we stopped it, I finally said, you know, you should come to Southwest Georgia. And uh, when you come, bring your wife. Uh, so he told me that, he told the congressman from that area, he might come, I said, you should really come. And then he gave me, a well, I had the telephone number. They had text to me. Uh, he said the young man who arranged the call um, could come into his office at any time. So anytime I needed to get him. Um, I could contact him. I had no intention of ever doing it. People said, why didn't you follow up and call? That's just not me. You know, if I got an issue I want to work on, then I'm gonna work on that issue. And if that means I I call him, then I'll do so. But I didn't think it was a sincere um, offer. So I wasn't gonna be one of those individuals who kept calling up there trying to get the president and not being successful. So I'm rambling a lot, trying to cover, it's hard to cover 52 years, you all. <laughs> but just um, giving some insight on what it's been like to, to do this work and then getting that plantation. I have a problem calling it a plantation even today, but um, we're developing with farming. It had 85 acres of pecan trees that are about 100 years old. We brought them into production and we have added 100 acres and, um, and then we're replacing all the trees um, as we go along. So I wanted to say, we just, we just finished pecan harvest. We need a good market some, for some excellent pecans. They are irrigated, they, um, we use all of the best practices. Now we couldn't go organic. Uh, Cornoneer tried it and uh, they're still trying to come back from from it, but um, we, this is the largest crop, pecans, the largest single crop we have, but we also have satsuma oranges because not wishing anything bad on Florida, but that orange production is moving on up into Georgia. And uh, so we have a good crop this year of oranges and um, we added grape, muscadine grapes. We started with three acres and we'll add more up to 15 because our goal is to do wine. Uh, We have other programs going on there. We're looking for an excellent farm manager. So I try to say that everywhere. Um, But, um, you know, we're doing the best we can. We do have a little more cooperation out of USDA now. They've been different after the Shirley (laughs) Sherrod episode. You know, so um, I can take some questions and maybe we can can get at some of the other things through the years. No questions? Okay. Okay. I would like to know more about the families who were at the
2: original um, community,
1: and mm-hmm. whether
0: any of them are able to have Actually, the offspring from some of them are involved. Um, one of the things when we got the payout from uh, the lawsuit, We gave, there were 16 families at that point toward the end who stayed until the very end. And uh, we gave each of those families $100,000 from uh, the money received from the lawsuit. And um, a couple of them, um, some of the children who grew up at New Communities, the original New Communities uh, serve on the board. They're, They're adults now. And then others are involved in various ways. We don't have the land, um, to actually build those villages. Like we see, we had 6,000 acres and now we're 1,638 acres. And that's a prime piece of property because our property comes right up to the city limits of Albany. We've had, um, we had, we, we look, at as a pla- look at it as a place for healing as well. So we decided to have blessing of the land ceremony. We, we were looking at just one. So we brought together the Lower Creek Indian tribe that's in um, Grady County, Georgia. We had white people, black people, uh, Hispanics. I think there were a few Asians. We had a good mix of people and trying to bring all of us together um, and do a blessing of the land. The Lower Creek Indians were the first inhabitants of the area. So uh, Chief McCormick decided, because during our planning process, we have a wooded area that's called, they gave that name to preserve. We have the farming area, and then we have the area up around that antebellum house. So she actually thought we should have three blessings of the land ceremony. So we started with the first one. And uh we we have a copy of an ad from Dec. well, the the sale was December the 29th, 1859, where the original owner had died and his son had the land for seven years and then he died. So they were selling the slaves and other parts of the land. We decided we wanted to try to locate descendants of those slaves who were sold. We know who bought them and all. And all this was happening so quick, so, but the, we, the historian who, who did um, a quick history of that land actually found right away one of the families um, that, that, um, where the slave person was there and then um, the father of the children she had. Anyway, Judge Herbert Phipps uh, was the chief judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals. His great-great-grandmother was a slave there, and his great-great-grandfather was the overseer. And when you look at his assets before slavery ended, he owned about five slaves. Um, After slavery ended, he actually married Mary Jane, and they had a total of eight children. And Judge Phipps Phipps is um, part of that family. We want to do more on looking for the others. Uh, There's so much we want to do, but we have to get something that's profitable uh, going on there. Um, New communities in, in 2016, we don't remember why we made new communities a 501C4. That means you can't um, donate and get a tax write-off. So we created the Charles Sherrod Community Development Corporation in 2016. And it has a program, it's through a grant where we're actually helping people in Southwest Georgia to try to get better housing, to develop um, businesses with business and developing business plans and so forth. And uh, working with youth uh, in the area. So, any other question or comment? Tell us some, Tell us something we can do. <laughs> There's a 85 acre lake on the property, and it goes dry it, when we are in a major drought it it goes dry. Um, climate change has made it happen twice since we've been there. But the fish come back. Um, the lake is beautiful when it's full of water. Um, they told us the previous owner of it, um, <clears throat> he he invented the system for paying for fuel at the pump. So he had a lot of money and you can see it that aunt, he spent three million dollars just restoring that house, that big house you see there. And he built cabins on the lake. Um, he tried to plug those uh, sinkhole, those sinkholes with with uh, um, cement. They told me at one point he had about thirty cement trucks out there, but they just pop up somewhere else. That's what he didn't realize. <laughs> Okay.
1: I had a question. I was just curious, um, you know, I think the film really showed how clear that the reason that Black-owned land has decreased so much is so related to the way that the government has discriminated against those farmers. But I'm curious, in your experience, I know you speak to many different groups, but how much do people really know that? How much do people really understand the reason that, you know, the percentage of land owned by Black
2: farmers has you know, it's about one percent right now, and it wasn't
0: always like that. I don't think most individuals get it. They, you know, we tend in this country to blame people for not doing the right thing. Um, but in our case, when there was a drought first year, we didn't really go to farmers' home because they had blocked all other federal money. We we had OEO working with us. They funded. The planning process. We had 500 families ready to move on to the land. We had chosen where the communities would be, how the housing, where the house, what kind of housing and so forth. And Lester Maddox put an end to that by saying that no federal money could come into the state um, to our project. Um, You don't know what that did to what would have been a major. Um, project for the area, not just Lee County, Georgia, had we been allowed to keep going? You know, so you would, you would tend to blame the black, black farmer for not doing the right thing and therefore you lose your asset. But it's been, just, just imagine, uh, and a lot of people talk about now said with weatherization, well, all of the white folks got the, the money and then by the time we get there, they say it's all gone. You didn't get the information. So by the time you figured out how they were repairing all of their houses and then you go to try to get it it's gone. You know, and it's just it just happens. And we have to move past that to get to to keep working to do what we need to do, but you know by 1910 we had over 15 million acres of farmland. And can you imagine what that would mean today. Now, a lot of it didn't happen simply because of discrimination, but just like with new communities, when the farm manager and my husband went there, to talk about getting an emergency loan, like all farmers were doing. The guy said, you get it over my dead body. And he could say that and mean it, you see. So we're just helpless in that. So you you end up losing, that was one 6,000 acre chunk of land you know, that we lost, but you can't give up. I, you know, for young people, I especially say that. You cannot give up. You have to keep going and doing whatever you can, because look at what happened. We lost everything in 1985. And, be, you know, the Black Farmers' Lawsuit uh 1997 was when the settlement, you know, agreed to, well, it was filed and you, we agreed to, to um, not go to court, but to settle with the government. And who would have thought? It took 10 years now. We could have easily, we could have given up. The lawyer for the Justice Department, so we filed by the deadline of October 13, 1999. Our hearing was held on July the 30th, 2002. And uh, the lawyer for the government you could tell. I mean, she, had, she acted like she didn't know what she was doing and all, and, and really didn't, we found later, because two years after our hearing, she was arrested in California. She was not a lawyer, you know, She was working as a lawyer for the Justice Department, and she was not a lawyer, but they told us that wouldn't have any bearing on our case. Um, we, so we filed by October 13, 1999, we appealed when that, well, they told us that we had a really fair hearing officer. She was the wife of the, of the adjudicator, the chief adjudicator for the Pickford case. And we knew we had won that case, but she sent us a letter in October saying um, we were denied. We appealed. And uh, they had to appoint someone other than the monitor to hear our, to handle our appeal, because the monitor, I had served on their board, Farmer's Legal Action Group, and she was really a friend. So she had to step back, they got someone else. It took four years for the final report to be issued. And gosh, I wish I had brought that report with me just to, Show you some of what they found, because the the guy we we did have 935 acres that they didn't have a lien on, so they were dragging their feet like they would do, so that you can't you you may get the money in June when you needed it in January. So we cut some timber on the ninety on the um, 930 acres that they didn't have a lien on, and um, and my husband and the farm manager were in there talking to the county supervisor. And my husband said, we had to cut timber to survive. What, you cut timber? He made us give him the $50,000 from, from land they didn't even have a lien on to saying that he, we had to pay them that before we could borrow any more money. And, um, and so that, I wish you could see how that was written up in, the, in that report. The things that they highlighted, It'll make you cry just looking at it because he the, they really got what happened to us. So not only did um, he award just a little over 12 million, but he made uh farmer's home pay us back every penny we had paid them on our loans. You know, so it was a real victory to actually get it. So you can't give up. Had Just think if we hadn't filed, you know, we wouldn't have what we have now. The organization would have been totally over. It would have been gone. But um, you just have to keep working at it and keep working at it. You know, it's just like this situation going on with this administration. I kept thinking the other day, you know, things don't always stay on the top. It flips and the bottom come. So I was just thinking the other day, when is that change going to come? And, uh, <laughs> And I do believe it's beginning to come. You know, we we can't stop working though, at the at this level to try to help make some things happen. Yeah, okay.
2: Thanks. Like on the beginning of the here, in Georgia, I was curious if y'all have any kind of, I'm out of business, but y'all have any kind of like um, consultation services or like step-by-step guides on, uh, specifically, like the meeting green, that's involved, uh, uh, aggregating parcels into one land trust and how you bend a transition like that or
0: just forming something like that. And, uh, do you have any sort of uh, like yeah. consultations? It's so sad that we've been working so that we haven't done some of the things we need to do with writing and putting stuff like that together. We can share our experiences, but we really have not written the history of new communities. And that's not a good thing because uh, we did create the first community land trust in this country. I was actually in a meeting in New York one day and the lady sitting beside me was from uh, Tennessee. She was from Appalachia, it was either Tennessee or Kentucky, and she said that they created the first community land trust in the country and I couldn't believe it, you know? So I actually came after her and I said, we created the first community land trust. I know those folks were confused as the devil, but we did create the first community land trust. But, you know, hopefully we'll point, cause my husband's, my husband, he'll be 81 in about three weeks and uh, his health is, is not the best. Um, really need to, we need to share you know, some of what we did and how we did it and why we did it with, um, in you know, in writing. So that, um, and documents, we did lose a lot of stuff when they put us off the land. We, um, we have another nonprofit, the Southwest Georgia Project for community education. That's where we do a lot of the training. That was the, my husband's work when he came down to South Georgia, it was called the South Southwest Georgia project. And when Stokely Carmichael became the leader of SNCC and said white people needed to go and work in their own communities, so he was basically asking them to leave SNCC, we didn't agree with it. Because at the time we had about 25 students out of Union Theological Seminary in New York. My husband got his masters there and recruited heavily from Union, so we didn't agree with it. and. Um, so we just um, incorporated the Southwest Georgia Project for community education. So that, that's why I can say that work started in 1961 and continued today and will continue to go on. So we do more of the training there through that organization. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.